Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical fiction, movies, and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I'm ready to talk about Rome. I'm Mark Powell, and today I am full of tea. Excellent. Well, as Michael said, today we're talking about the HBO series Rome, specifically season one. And usually I'd start with a one-sentence summary to give you an idea, but I do believe it's all in the title, Rome. This one is all about Rome, and it's a big topic, which is why we've decided to do a multi-part series for the first time. Uh, we're going to do actually four episodes uh, because it is such a big topic. And I want to emphasize that the discussion is obviously inspired by HBO's TV show Rome. But I think maybe more than any of our other episodes, you don't really need to have seen the source material. Uh, because this is history you have a vague idea of anyway. Like, of course, we'll get it a bit into the show and how it's presented these events. But this is classic, like, et tu brute stuff. <laughs> it's got Caesar, it's got Cleopatra. And if you're anything like me, you've grown up with these people as cultural historical figures. But maybe, just like me, you're a bit vague on some of the details. Like, what actually happened with these people? And, did you know, they what was life exist? like during that time? Yeah, yeah did they ex- <laughs> actually exist? They're just kind of larger-than-life characters, and we're going to clear some of that up. And in this first episode, we're talking about the events leading up to episode one of Rome. So even if you haven't seen a single episode of HBO's Rome, there won't be any spoilers here. Uh, Again, spoilers in a historical context is a weird (laughs) thing to talk about. But genuinely for me, I avoided looking into this as I was watching Rome because I was like, what's going to (laughs) happen? Next episode, we'll get into the events of season one of Rome and we'll continue from there. But just to give an idea of what this show is, would you tell us a bit more about uh, this HBO production, Michael? Yeah, so it's 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 quite aged now. At this stage, it's about fifteen years old. It it ran from two thousand and five to two thousand and seven. It was for its time and still is uh, one of the most expensive TV shows ever made. I believe uh, so much so that HBO and the BBC went together to make it. Um, as we'll kind of touch on later, it, essentially what happened was they planned to do a big, long five-season Game of Thrones on it, uh, even before Game of Thrones existed. And uh, But what, what happened was they ran out of money. So what we get is two seasons jam-packed full of Roman history. Um, some of it, what you'll notice is that there's some inaccuracies, but we're kind of going to, I suppose, look at more how they portray the era as opposed to small little details they might have left out or that type of thing the show itself was created by john milius um who was a screenwriter on apocalypse now william j Macdonald and bruno heller who was known for gotham which i haven't watched i think it's a batman tv show is that right jacob it's very bad as well rome is actually good so don't let this dissuade you anyone (laughs) yeah yeah. In terms of uh, shooting, it was filmed in Lazio and in Italy and as well in Bulgaria near Sofia. Uh, it's beautifully shot, 
it, it it really you do really escape into history when you're looking at this TV show, you know. Um, the cast as well is excellent. Like we'll go into some of the characters later on when we're, but like there there's memorable people, and even if you haven't seen this in years, there's people that will stand out for you. But essentially, the TV show comes to us. We view it through the eyes of two lowly i suppose you'd call their their centurions really although they do move up in the world um lucius veranus and titus pullo uh, who are portrayed by kevin mckid of train spotting fame actually and ray stevenson as well and they are just your classic i i suppose bromance really is that what you'd call it Jay? oh yeah they're my boys. That I love them so much. <laughs> yeah, it's like a buddy cop uh, thing, isn't it? Like, dude, yeah, it's great. Exactly. It's like I. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about these this in the episodes, but they're the characters who are not based on well, not much historical record. So yeah. they kind of give us, even if you know all the history, you're kind of uh, you can be a bit tense about what's going to happen to these two guys, and that they're they're the everyman. You know, they're wandering through history, basically bumping into stuff, bumping into all these big events, and obviously these two guys weren't really entwined in literally every historical event going on at the time, but it just kind of works probably uh because they have such great chemistry great acting mm. but also as as michael said it's a beautiful show you can see there's so much like money on the screen and how much they oh, yeah. put into producing this and in some ways it does feel like uh a test run for game of thrones not that they were even probably thinking about making it at the time but it's like a, you know this is definitely the biggest project that hbo has taken on at the time uh i would assume a huge investment in in both time and money so when they truncated it into two seasons it's kind of cutting off a lot of stuff but either way there's uh, a lot going on and, and it's beautifully put together well one thing i would say that is probably the standout thing i noticed when i watched it was that Typically in Hollywood films, Rome is portrayed as the marble city of the imperial world. Um, you know, your temples, all this. Now, we do have temples in this, but Rome is dirty. You know, it's colorful. Yeah. Like what we often don't realize is a lot of the statues that were in the streets, they were painted. The temples were painted. We just think they were marble or gray buildings. Whereas actually Rome was a color, a multicultural, colorful place full of different characters even so much that uh, like you see graffiti in the streets uh, of popular characters and stuff like that. So it really does give you a great feel for the time and uh, you know, hats off to, to the producers. Absolutely. Well, speaking of giving a feel for the time, in this episode, we're sort of taking a step back uh, and sort of landing in a few important Roman historical events because just as the characters of Cleopatra and you know Caesar are huge cultural figures in a lot of minds i think we think of rome and it's just one thing but rome existed for such a long time and went through so much evolution and we're gonna like touch on some of the most important events right that's what our idea for this episode to kind of bring us up to where we are at the start of of season one of rome um yeah yeah so i think i think what we were talking about doing really is sort of um giving context to this the setting I guess, you know, you, you open up with episode one and the Roman Empire is established and you have these victorious generals and all that kind of stuff going on. So what we thought we would do with this episode is sort of just set the scene. Why does Rome become a powerful thing, basically? Why does I'm it sorry become... to nitpick there. You did say it was a 
in episode one it's a powerful empire but it isn't right like it's not an empire yet in episode one or well it's still the republic but it is it is uh the power in the region at that point like it's power mm. in the mediterranean yeah at that, at that point. it's having an identity crisis basically at this yeah. time you know <laughs> exactly um yeah so how far are we stepping back are we going back to the very uh birth of rome or its early history who wants to dive into that <laughs> so I, I suppose I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll take that like um tra- the traditional day for the founding of the city is 753 BC so in terms of the TV show that's like 700 years before the show starts so we, we really are going to motor through a lot of history here um I was asked once like just in just in sort of conversation um like a, a fairly a fairly broad question innocently asked but a fairly broad question and it was basically why is it that of all of the towns and and city states and things like that that existed in the Mediterranean world at the time? Why is it that Rome became this great powerful empire, this great sort of superpower in the Mediterranean? And I think there's a there's a there's a few reasons for that. Um, firstly, like the the, the location of the city, realistically, um, back in the midst of time, what what uh, archaeologists believe actually happened was there's this famous seven hills of Rome, and essentially each of those hills had a little village on it. They were near the Tiber River, which allowed them, uh, obviously, trade access and access to clear water. And just over time, those villages grew and combined to each other. The legends that the Romans have of themselves, they're, they're, they're many and varied. Some people will claim that they are the descendants of refugees from the Trojan War, believe it or not. So they, they trace their lineage all the way back to the Iliad, you know, the, 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 the time of Hector and Achilles and all of that kind of stuff. And then other people think that they're actually a Greek colony. Other people think it's, a, it's an Etruscan city. But I think the important thing to understand is any concept that you have of countries just needs to go out the window. There's no such thing as Italy. There's no such thing as Greece. There's no such thing as France. Any of those countries you're familiar with. What exists instead are these microstates, little towns and villages that have their own form of government, often kings, sometimes republics, and they essentially look after their own affairs. Um, the, Rome itself is situated in a fairly precarious situation because where it sits on the Tiber, to the north of it is a is a, a loose collection of cities who are ethnically tied together and familially tied together, and that's called the Etruscans, which you might have heard of. Tuscany is the area that, that that we're talking about there. To the south, then you've got Greek colony cities, so modern day Naples uh, and Taranto, all around there, Brundisi, uh, those those cities there. They're they're Greek colonies, so Rome is sort of wedged between those two things. Further north, then you've Gallic tribes. They're the Celtic speaking people that you're that you're uh, you, you might be familiar with from various uh, historical like shows Asterix or TV series o- or whatever. Asterix and Obelix. Yeah. Yeah, basically those guys. It's just them two up there. Sort of That's the it. They're just too. behind the Alex. They're just waiting <laughs> yeah. to attack. Well, they have that magic juice that yeah, makes them so, go strong. So. <laughs> exactly right. So that, that area up, up to the north of Italy, what we would now, I guess, call Lombardy, that's that's Gallic. They're, they're speaking Celtic languages and they're, and they're not... Um, they're not similar in terms of their in terms of their uh social structures to the way that the cities in the in the south of italy and into greece and the mediterranean more broadly speaking are um i guess the, the everyone is probably familiar enough with the the founding myth of uh romulus and ramus and michael i think you wanted to have a, a little uh a little aside about that for a moment yeah well like this is i think it's always important whenever you're studying a historical society is to tell is to learn what myths they told themselves about their own origins because it gives you an idea of kind of their mentality uh a lot of the time 
why they believed that they were superior to others and had uh, a right to act in a certain way and it's no different for Rome uh, as Mark said there's a ton of different theories the most famous one is the two brothers as everyone knows of it Ramus and Romulus um, and essentially to cut it short they are apparently born to a virgin priestess as you do um, who was raped by the god of war Mars yeah there's not a lot of historical accuracy for this one but you know <laughs> You know, there isn't, uh, there's nothing to say it didn't happen either. Um, they were apparently, two, these two boys, they were abandoned by the Tiber uh, and they were saved by a wolf who in turn, ra- and in turn raised by a shepherd. Uh, to cut a long story short, they both grew up and they both realized only one of them could be the top dog. And so Rome is born in between of two, one bur- m- brother, uh, killing the other so there's death from the very beginning and a struggle from the very beginning and i think that's important uh for to give an idea of later the later mentality of rome because they were always born in strife and felt that they had to struggle over others if you know what i mean Um, and it's a it's a nice metaphor for civil war too right i mean two brothers yeah fighting over the over the city and it's it's something that you'll see, and we'll see in later episodes, just sort of repeated through Roman history. There's always some sort of a struggle for power. There's always a civil war. Every five minutes, there's a civil war. What by the time we get to the era that the show is setting, you know? I was just going to say, especially as we get into, um, uh, you know, the the empire or the republic becoming so big that there's no one else that can fight it except itself. It's just going to self-implode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very much so. Uh, but Rome itself, like, the... What a lot of people don't realize is that when Romulus founded Rome, apparently, and became the first king of Rome, that the city itself was, you know, it was a city for exiles. So basically it was anyone seeking asylum or anyone banished from any other community of Italy would make their way to Rome. And the way the Romans looked at it was everyone was accepted um, as long as they played their part in defending the city and this type of thing. Um, now, in terms of the what we lead into then is essentially seven kings of Rome. Um, now, when they say seven kings of Rome, it's they're conveniently spaced out, as in they're all they all reigned for a given set of period. They all gave something to Roman society, whether it be what one of them gave the priesthood, one of them founded the army, all this type of thing. Um, but essentially, they. This, this, these seven kings of Rome uh, reigned until 509 BC. So, um, the final king is a guy called, uh, fantastically named Tarquinius Superbus. Um, essentially, what happens is his son um, rapes uh, a Roman noblewoman called Lucretia, and now he had been a bit of a, a bit of an arsehole his whole reign. But that was sort of the final straw. And what ended up happening was the the senators, so they're the, the the families, the lead men of the of the powerful families of the city. They decide, right, that final straw, that's it, you're out. So there's a there's a revolution essentially, um, and the noble families throw the king out of the city, and this is led by a man called Brutus, who obviously his ancestor will become important later on, or his descendants rather will become important later on. Um, what they do is they 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 throw the king out, uh, they exile him. And they form a new system of government whereby power is essentially shared among the already powerful classes. So 
the role that the king previously had himself um, gets divvied up between elected members of that class. Um, and the, the concept of the king, I mean, that, that becomes a dirty word in Roman history. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like the, um, the the nemesis of Rome, like this, this they hate the idea of a king. You know, they will never stomach it, and it becomes obviously apparent later on when certain generals become too powerful, or you know, one accusation that gets thrown at people to sort of bring them down is, oh, he's behaving like a king. You know, this is this is a seriously negative thing in Roman society. But in any case, Brutus and and his pals they they establish the republic. Tarquinius does make an effort to take the throne back. He, he goes to his relatives in, uh, in Tuscany, in modern-day Tuscany, and raises an army. Uh, he brings that up against the Republic, the, the nascent Republic, but um, the, the senators win the battle, and Rome's, Rome's Republic is born at that point. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned there that senators, they would have existed before the exile of the king as well as sort of a, I suppose, more of an administrative thing. At least that's that's just my guess based on the fact that as emperors rose uh, later on, much later on, they also remained and, and filled a function in society. But what we're heading into here is the sort of true Republican era, uh, Republican yes, Rome, yeah. uh, which is much romanticized all like all throughout history like within roman history and afterwards in the american revolution as described in our hamilton episode when we discussed that uh but it's just an era that uh everyone look back at and think of fondly at least you know i i don't know how much of that is actually well deserved but obviously that republican system did not last until the end of rome it transformed into an empire which is basically the plot of season one of rome but what was that system actually like like the republican system how did it work and why afterwards have people you know looked at it with such rose-tinted glasses well i think the most important thing at the very basis of it all is that there was a determination never to return to the rule of one man that's probably the easiest way to put it so what stemmed from that is a system of sort of checks and balances for everything so the idea that was that no one man could hold absolute power um or and the power that was vested in individual citizens was always limited so that even if you got a dickhead or uh, as a as a consul for the year <laughs> it wouldn't really matter because next year he'll be gone and there'll be a new one and we can repair yeah, it you know that type of way uh but essentially instead of having a king they gave the powers of the kings to essentially to two elected consuls every year and rome what uh, developed a system of elections for everything from uh the administrator of a city to questers to uh every every t- sort of public body would have uh, an elected individual so to speak you know now they weren't always your clean elections that you can imagine there was a loads of different corruption and bribery and all that but the idealized version of the republic probably never really existed except in say some of cicero's writings or something like that <laughs> uh but yeah. in general like all politics it was grubby it was dirty but there was still elections the main thing two counts consuls elected every year one would essentially they would form they would run the government but they would also wage war um on neighboring tribes or protect the city from invasion all this type of thing so much so that we use a calendar now where we describe a year say as 63 bc for argument's sake we would say that the romans would never have said had that concept of a year like that they would have said who was the consul that year and 
so for example the year 63 bc was the year of cicero and hybrida so that was the way they defined the year by who which two men and they were always men uh who were the consul <laughs> for that year you know um but yet yeah, the whole the, this system of constant elections like it created obviously a very healthy civil discourse but as well as that immense rivalries between families who were trying to essentially get one over on another um there was a whole myth that you had to uh surpass the great deeds of your ancestors essentially so you would they were obs- the romans were obsessed with outdoing their grandfathers and if they did not get the leading job uh in their year then they would feel shamed by this and you know this you could say is a reason why they always strived and they they were so successful but it's also one of the ingredients as to why there was so much civil war and killings and all this type of thing as well so you know what one of their greatest strengths was also one of their uh you know what one of the things that weakened them from the inside if you know what yeah. i mean yeah Sure. That's good. Uh, they, the main they, they saw no enemy as as more dangerous than themselves, right? I mean, it, it, their their principal Rome's principal enemy is Rome, really, this for most of its history. And I think that it's important to know that there was two main social classes. So there was the plebeians, who were kind of the the lower orders, um, and de- then there was another uh, a group who were the ruling class, essentially the optimates. So they were like the patrician class. They were the ones who ran the senate. Like, you had to be a millionaire to be in the Senate, if you know what I mean. And both sets of uh, both sets had rules and regulations to control the power of each group. So the plebs, for example, would elect tribunes. And the idea would be if the senatorial, evil senators were getting too uppity or trying to grab too much land or too much power, then the the lower classes uh, would have a way of protecting themselves against that, you know? So over hundreds of years, this system of government was built up on tradition and established norms, um, which is essentially called mos maiorum. And w- this developed in an organic way. And it was basically, the way I describe it is, it's like if we were all in a club and we had a load of unwritten rules and as th- it wouldn't be a problem as long as we all accepted the room. <laughs> so we all washed our glasses and our cutlery after eating. And we all tidied up the house, you know. Um, then everything's, everybody's living this harmonious life. But as soon as people start breaking these established traditions and norms, that's when everything goes to shit. And in, in short, that's what happens to Rome. Um, so I don't know, Mark, if you wanted to kind of maybe to speak about how rome became so dominant what was the main thing that made it so dominant in the mediterranean maybe yeah so there's a couple of sort of key points that explain why rome as opposed to any of the other many and varied city-states that existed why did it become the power i mean there were sort of equivalent cities um in greece like athens is the one that jumps to mind sort of credited with creating democracy but you might say that very well and good they created democracy but it's the romans who spread it um, and they would say perfected it, <laughs> which might be going a little too far. But their their position geographically is the first thing that helps. They sit in a, a so, sort of focal point, so they're between the Greek colonies and the Etruscan cities to the north. So they're sort of acting as a go between. So that's good for trade. So that's sort of the first thing. But what should be understood is is that uh, Rome didn't just 
you know, they say Rome wasn't built in a day, but the Roman Empire, the Roman power wasn't built in a day either. This took centuries. It wasn't as if they just, they overthrew the king and, and suddenly they're super powerful. They had real, real struggles for centuries and centuries um, with their with their sort of peer group in terms of other cities in, in Italy. Firstly, in their local area, and then as it expanded out, um, there, were, there were existential wars against the Etruscans to the north. I mean, they were nearly, very nearly completely wiped out. They were defeated in battle almost as often as they were victorious. The difference with the Romans they is... They never gave up. Well, yes. <laughs> so this is the thing. The difference with the Romans is... And this is something that, that's in there, in, ingrained in them culturally. Like, they take wars very personally, which is not... Which is, I know that sounds sort of silly, but for the Mediterranean war, world, that's not what happens. Typically, a city marches its army out and fights another city, and it loses or it wins, and then you impose a peace treaty and you say, okay, you owe us a lot of money, and you can't do that, and give, us, give me your daughter. And you kind of go, yeah, okay, fair enough, you licked us this time, but we'll be back in 10 years. That's not what Rome does. When Rome beats you, what it does is it incorporates you into an alliance structure. And this is the key thing. This, this is how it grows. So if it beats a neighboring town, it doesn't wipe the town out. What it does is it absorbs that town in and says, right, we're now allies. So you have to supply detachments of men and arms to the Roman army. And now you start to feel like you're part of the Roman army. So you're, you, like their victories are now your victories. And what they would do is, what you were discussing there, the two, the two sort of classes, what ends up happening is, as they grow in power, each city or town that gets brought into the alliance structure is sort of the carrot that they dangle to these people is, we might give you citizens' rights. So if you get citizens' rights, if you're a citizen of Rome, it means you can do business in the city, you have the opportunity to become wealthy, you can maybe progress up through their system, and their system is more you egalitarian. And than uh, else's. I'll cut in: is voting one of those rights? Were the plebs not able to vote? Um, I would assume. Or... The, the plebs of Rome, the pleb, uh, the lower classes, they would have been Roman mm. citizens. But what Marks, I think, getting at is that there was a whole satellite system of towns and cities around Rome that they were in alliance with Rome, but the Romans still sure. looked down on them and they were like, oh, yeah. Samnites, we're not giving you, we're not giving you rights to vote yeah. in Rome. Ugh, th- get away from And this me, is a concept know? that evolves over time. I mean, there, there is a point much later in the empire where the emperor just says, right, anyone who lives in the borders of the empire is a citizen now. And that's just what it is. And that carries with it the protection of the Roman army. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a serious, serious thing. There's these all, you, you come across these phrases where they say, like somebody could walk from Cumbria to Syria and they just... They just uh, carry a, a, you know, a scroll or whatever, and it's a, a, and it will just say, "I'm a citizen of Rome." And that means if you attack this person, the legions are coming for you. The Roman army is going, no matter where you are in the world. So think, think about that expanse of geography. That's essentially what the Romans sort of dangle. That's the carrot they dangle to their allies. Some of them have some rights. Some of them have less rights. Some of them have specialized rights and specialized circumstances. But it's really Rome's ability to absorb the manpower of its allies into its own army. And what it will do is it will take the best of each of its allies and incorporate that into its system. So the famous Roman sword that you're used to seeing, they just stole that from a Spanish tribe. The chain mail that the, that the soldiers wear, which is accurate in the TV show, that's an adaptation from, from Gallic uh, military hardware. So anything that's good and they think will work, they have absolutely no compunction about stealing this and just, and just copying it and then using it against you. And that's sort of their great, their great thing. They don't... The other little... Go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. I was just going to say they don't treat uh, war the same way. They basically say, if you, once we've beaten you, you join us. And if you don't join us, we obliterate you completely. We just burn you out completely. You're gone. Uh, the other thing I, I, I think that uh, what I found interesting the first time I studied Roman history was that they, 
you know, you often have the idea that when a right a power takes over by force another area, that they will force them to convert to their religion and their way of life and all that. One of the great things about Rome in terms of being able to get people to accept that they were the top dog and to pay fealty to them was that they didn't care what god you continued to worship they didn't care as long as you paid tax and taxes and sent uh, soldiers to fight in the legions that was enough for them you know uh, so they didn't try and overdo it in time they would have romanized provinces by building uh you know their cities and people would have said oh that looks good that looks cool but indoor plumbing great yeah we need some of that you know uh but like it, it, they they <laughs> tended to convert what have the romans ever done for us eh this is it they tend yeah, to right, kind of exactly, convert exactly. people in time just to their way of life if you know what i mean but they didn't go in too heavy-handed all in terms of cultural it's completely gradual what what happens is the cultures just recognize the value of rome and essentially, when Rome gets to a certain, there's a certain critical mass that it hits in Italy, after which the other towns and cities, they want to be part of it because they see how successful it's been. Now, early on, uh, when they're starting to grow, the Greek colonies in the south, they get a little nervous because they see this, what they would regard as barbarian because they're non-Greek speaking, you know, this town in the north is getting sort of powerful. They actually, at one point, they link together and they, they employ a Greek king to come to Italy to try and defeat the Romans. So this is a guy called Pyrrhus. He's a distant relative of Alexander. He brings war elephants into Italy and there's a, a series of huge clashes against the Romans. And the reason I mention that is it's, a, it's an illustration of the point I was making earlier. This guy Pyrrhus annihilates three Roman armies. He, he just keeps beating them. They keep sending armies against him and he keeps beating them. And there's a famous line after, after the third battle where he says... Uh, one more, one more such victory and I'll be undone. Because he can't afford to keep losing the men. The Romans just have this vast reserve of manpower. And that's where the, the term Pyrrhic victory comes from. Like you've won the, you might have won this victory, but you've lost a war because you, you just, you've strategically lost even if you've tactically won. The Romans just won't give up and they can always draw on more manpower than you. At any one time, so, a, a Roman army will be between 40 and 60% non-Roman citizen. It'll be allied. So... And Mark, when does what, at what point does Rome expand to such an extent that it suddenly meets someone who is of a similar size to them, you know, another big bully? When, when does that happen and, and, and who was that big bully, I suppose? So by the time that Rome has sort of established its dominance over the Italian peninsula completely, it's, it's sort of transformation into, into a more than a regional power, into a sort of a, a, a sort of a superpower. It's almost by accident. And what essentially happens is it runs afoul uh, another very powerful city-state, which is in the north coast of Africa, just right opposite Sicily, and that's the city Carthage. And Carthage was a, was a colony of Tyre, so it's, it's a, a Semitic, ethnically Semitic uh, group. Um, they basically bump into each other and they have a disagreement over who should be influencing politics on the island of Sicily. And that f- uh, fires off uh, this just enormous war. The best way to think about it is it's sort of World War One and World War Two of the ancient world. Yeah. Um, with elephants. So if you think of... With elephants, yeah, of course, elephants. If you think of, like, uh, the United States getting involved in World War One, where it's, at first its, its army is not really great, it's sort of regional power, it takes a bit of a pasting from the Germans early on, but by the time you're getting towards the end of World War Two, there's nobody fucking with them and everyone knows who the big dog is. That's Rome. That's what happens with Rome. So this war goes on and off from 264 to 146 BC. So it's a long, long time. There's three wars. 
It happens in three stages. The principal thing to understand, though, is in the Second War, the Carthaginian, Carthaginian uh, general Hannibal, who's a, the, the famous Hannibal's at the gates, he surprises Rome and he marches an army over the Alps, which they had alleged was impossible to do, but he does it. And he marches this army into, into Italy, and again, the Romans like, ah, oh, this is okay, we'll send an army against him. And he smashes them, and then he does it again, and then he does it again. Um, so similar to what had happened with Pyrrhus, but it's on an even grander scale. The third army the Romans send against him is the biggest army that they had ever raised at that point. And he slaughters it. And when I mean he slaughters it, it'd be around 80,000 dead. Like, it's an enormous amount of people dead. But what the Romans do is they adapt. So they basically say, okay, we can't beat this guy in the field, so we'll adopt a war of attrition. So they start attacking the supply lines. Hannibal just doesn't know what to do because Rome is not behaving the way city is supposed to behave. He's beaten them three times, including their biggest army ever, and they still haven't surrendered. Fortunately for them, he hasn't got siege equipment, so he can't sack Rome itself. So they basically hold out and they exhaust them. Meanwhile, they're sending smaller armies around the Carthaginians area, the Carthaginian areas of control, like in Spain and in North Africa, and they just wear them down. There is a climatic battle after a while, but really what beats the Carthaginians is Roman stubbornness. They just won't give in. So over time, what happens is Carthage's power wanes, and Rome adds its power to itself. And the principal thing is Carthage's power is its economy. It's a merchant empire. So it's massive fleet, huge amount of resources coming in from the Western Mediterranean and the Eastern Mediterranean, all the spices and gold and silk and the everything that you associate with the East. Well. The mines, gold mines, silver mines of Spain, all of that kind of stuff. That all now starts flooding into Rome. So suddenly this, this uh, city-state has gone from regional power, local power, now it's a massive power. It's the big dog in the Mediterranean. The war with Carthage, because it is a system of alliance, also ends up bringing in the conflict with Macedon and Greece. And again, they just don't give up. No one knows how to deal with this crowd. Every time you beat them, they just keep coming back. And people just get fed up and they surrender over time, essentially. So by 146, uh, essentially the end of the Third Punic War, Rome is the top dog of the Mediterranean. Uh, it's, it doesn't really have any other rivals in class. Um, so the problem is more... Not what we're going to do next, because they're pretty much unstoppable until they get to party, really. But uh, it's more, can we keep this republic, this system of government that was founded to run a small city-state so we don't all kill each other? Can that actually expand <laughs> to take in the known world at the time in the Mediterranean? The, the, their government system, as you say, it's designed to govern a city, a successful and powerful and big city. And it can maybe be extended to uh, sort of govern a, a loose alliance of city-states, a loose grouping of city-states. But it, it's, it's not designed to run an empire. It's not designed to run you know, millions of square miles of land, all sorts of different cultures and languages and religions and trade. And the, the Senate becomes very, very bloated and very, very powerful. And the men who run it, of course, this is a proto-capitalist system. So the people with power are making shit tons of money. So... You've got these senators who previously would have been, as you say, millionaires, but now they're now they're really onto something. They're extraordinarily wealthy. Meanwhile, Rome itself is drawing more and more people from all around its vast holdings, and the city expands and just becomes absolutely gargantuan. I mean, there's a million people living in Rome by the time of Julius Caesar. Just think about that, like in 2,000 years ago. Yeah. I mean, after the fall of Rome, there isn't another city the size that Rome was at its pomp 
until London in the 19th century. Just think about that. It's, it's extraordinarily powerful, you know. Um, but as these things happen, um, the power and the wealth and the uh, corruption of the government and the settlement of uh, regional governorship and all that kind of thing, that obviously is a massive wealth disparity. Um, and that sort of leads to the sort of social issues that you yeah, would expect. Like, like this is the big to. problem, really, that basically once Carthage was defeated, as Mark was saying, you're having just t- un- unspeakable amounts of wealth and slaves being flooding into Italy, you know? And there was actually a, a famous politician called Cato the Elder, and the way he put it, I, I think I liked it. He had a quote from it. It was like, we've crossed into Greece and Asia, places filled with all the, allo- uh, all the, uh, what's it, the, all the allurements of vice, and we are handing the tre- handling the treasure of kings. I fear that these things will capture us rather than we them. And I really just think that makes sense because all of a sudden this un this just tons of wealth it's bringing in new societal pressures mass in inequality uh more more and more people are looking for a piece of the pie and it's not being shared out equally essentially yeah and, it, and it's it's i mean it's it's really well put but it, i mean it's the classic thing where you know power corrupts the empire like rome uh, and cato himself they were so focused for so long on just they the, the had to defeat Carthage. Like Carthage is the target. Carthage is they're obsessed with it. It was this phrase that Cato himself would say in the Senate. Um, so he'd say Caterum Cencio Carthago delenda est, which basically means furthermore Carthage must be destroyed. And he would say that at the end of a speech about anything. He could be talking about farming reform, and he'll finish the speech with also Carthage has to be destroyed. So once it's done, there's no enemy. There's there's no enemy anymore. So now it's just incredible it's basically his email signature there i uh, just uh, appended it to everything um exactly so yeah. about the slavery and the inequality there i just wanted to ask uh, obviously not everyone got the right to vote i mean it's a lot of romanticizing <laughs> about the republic and everything but like where were the levels if we're aware like did you have to be a rich man to vote i would assume so because that's is something we only did away with like a hundred years ago or could the common people vote well like what would happen would be for the main elections everyone would line up on uh, citizens would line up on what was called the field of mars which was just an open area outside rome and there would be stalls and they would vote by um i suppose tribe it was the right way of putting it now those tribes their their ethnic links had long since disappeared yeah. but everyone would be allocated mm. a tribe and they would vote by tribe now the thing is that the rich got to vote earlier than the poor so although the poorest man technically had a vote like by the time he actually got to go in and vote uh like the the election was long since decided so but but it still gave a certain, I suppose, self-respect that a citizen had the right to vote. And as well as that, for his vote, he would be, you know, richer richer men would, would often try to buy your vote by, you know, saying, oh, I'll make sure you get planning permission to build that shed on your land. And, you know, I'll make sure we get running water p- p- uh, piped into the house or just plain bribery, just money. So people although they abused their right to vote a lot of the time it still was a right that was very precious to them 
you know, as citizens. Uh, but yeah, they would line up in this kind of voting pens, as people vote today do as well, and they would vote by tribe, essentially. Like you say, it's a, it's a, po- it's a point of pride, like the, the, the point I was making earlier, like the, the line uh, that they would say is, uh, Kivus Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. Like, and that, that, that phrase, there was a lot of envy for that phrase uh, in the Mediterranean world. So everyone wanted to become a citizen. And ultimately, like we said earlier, the origin of the Romans, I mean, a lot of these people were, were slaves who were on the run. They were the people who populated the original city. So, I mean, for the Romans, it, it wasn't the case necessarily that there was, it, like, your circumstance was inescapable. You had a lot of people who came from freedmen who were originally slave families who rose their way up through the ranks and things like that. So you could earn your way up, but you needed money to do it. So what did all of this inequality eventually lead to? Like this flood of wealth that came in, it also brought in a, fl- uh, a few uh, other problems. So essentially, when all these soldiers, because the soldiers were taken at that time, you had to be a citizen to be in the Roman army. And uh, so when these soldiers were taken away to fight wars against Carthage or the Greek city-states or whatever, their farms would be neglected for years and they'd fall into disrepair. And what would often happen was these farmers would come home after fighting for Rome and the expansion of Rome and they'd be bankrupt. And what would happen would be their senatorial class, the rich optimates, they would buy up these lands and they would, instead of hiring local people to work on the fields, uh, local citizens, they would just bring in all the slaves from all these new colonies they had just created. So what happened was you got this massive pool of people who were completely disenfranchised. They no longer had land. They, f- uh, f- they all ran to Rome. They needed food. They needed work. They needed all the normal things that you need to stay alive, you know. Um, and they saw the rest of society getting incredibly rich, but they said, we don't even have uh, we don't even have you know our own homes to live in and i think this is put really well by a, a famous pop a populist who who tried to uh, bring more rights and more and, and more wealth to the lower classes and he said the wild beast a man called tiberius gracchus who we'll discuss in a moment he said the wild beasts that roam over italy have every one of them a cave to lurk in but the men who fight and die for italy do not yeah. And I think that kind yeah. of, like, that even rings true to our day where people would see mass inequality, you know, the billionaires and, uh, and, and all this type of thing. And it's no different then, you know. Uh, it's just a different scale and obviously different characters or whatever. Um, so what would happen was this, all of this anger and resentment, it led to the rise of what we discussed, basically populist politicians who said that they would give land to the poor that they would provide, say, a uh, free dole grain so that uh, there would be everyone would be able to eat. Uh, that they would give rights to non-Roman citizens. All these sort of really popular policies amongst the the lower classes. Now, whenever the lower classes want more rights, what tends to happen? The elites go fight back against it, and that's exactly what happened in Rome. The senatorial class was pitted against the lower classes uh, for, I suppose, uh, to, to div- divide up the spiles. Yeah, and I think Tiberius Gracchus and, and his his brother uh, Gaius Gracchus, they, they, um, they both became populist leaders. And the reason why they're important is the, the reforms that Michael sort of references. Like Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus are sort of 
known to history as sort of early socialists. You know, they're they're sort of the, the heroes of, of people who believe in equality or who who are, or who strive for equality and, and, and socialism. Um, but one of the reasons why they're important is not just that they show that that there was power in the mob, like there was power in the in the in the, in the plebs in the lower classes. The senatorial reaction to that was a symptom of the breakdown of the social cohesion. The senator's yeah. reaction is the like they have one to murder. Like it's not it, imagine an opposition uh, politician just coming out and killing somebody. Like you know, I know I know we live in strange times, but like I can't see Boris Johnson going and just having Keir Starmer whacked. Like, you know, I just I, I don't really see it happen. Or, or Trump having Biden killed. Like you know, yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> Well, but in you just need to go a, a little bit east into Russia, for example. I mean, it's still very much uh, something that happens. <laughs> so, like, the likes of this man, Tiberius Gracchus, like, he would have pushed mm. the very limit of the Roman constitution to its limit. So he would have, you know, um, used extraordinary measures that to try and get his land reforms across or to feed the poor and all of this led to a massive reaction and essentially the, as mark was saying the senators killed him they threw him in the tiber and they they basically quelled this populist uprising um, and this is the century prior to the events of julius caesar and uh you know and pompey and all the the, the events great de- events discussed in um in the Rome, the TV show, uh, and th- this, po- but this populist tendency, it, it was immensely powerful. But what w- it, it, and it couldn't be pushed down forever. And this is what happens. Some clever politicians saw that this that that their path to power led in controlling a mob that the mob uh, a, 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 mo- a mob who felt that they weren't getting their fair share of the pie, so to speak. And I think. The Grac, the Gracchi brothers, like from that perspective, another reason why they're important is they sort of provide, as you say, Michael, they sort of provide a blueprint for another way of gaining power, right? I mean, it's it's certainly the it's certainly one of the things that informs Caesar later on, as we'll see in 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 future episodes. The idea of being able to whip up a crowd, if you're a good speaker, if you're a good orator, and you can make the the common man believe that you're not a snooty sort of condescending aristocrat and you understand his plight and maybe you're known for living in the same conditions as the soldiers when you're on campaign with them those kinds of things can get you into positions of serious serious power while also making enemies of course. someone you could have a beer with or an irish equivalent someone with a nice midlands accent and get away with pretty much anything in politics <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean, that's exactly... I mean, that honestly, is it... Make a few appearances at the local GAA club and suddenly everyone thinks you're a proud local lad even though you don't know even the rules of Gaelic football, you know? Guilty. But, <laughs> well, yeah, same, same, to be fair, same. Um, but ultimately, like, the, what what ends up happening is the, there's all these social problems um, and then there's a sort of a... There's a sort of... Um, petrol is sort of thrown on the on the, the kindling here when um, later on a... a, a a general by the name of Gaius Marius. He um, is part of a campaign in North Africa. He's part, part of the army there. Through various means, doesn't really matter. He, he ends up taking uh, serious control in the army and he institutes a series of reforms, military reforms, which, is, which are called the Marian reforms. Now, they're important. And the reason why they're important is 
previously to be eligible to join the Roman army, as Michael said, you had to be a landowner. Now, that's going to whittle down your numbers. That's going to mean there aren't as many people available for the army anymore because fewer people own land now because the senators are hoarding it all. Especially if you have an empire to run, yeah, you know, exactly. you're going to need more soldiers. So Marius basically does away with that. He, he essentially says, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is, you can join the legions, anyone can join the legions, and as a as payment for joining the legions, what we'll do is we'll actually give you land after the campaign is finished. Now that sounded like a great idea at the time, because it meant there was a huge swell in the numbers of people who could join the army. Marius comes in at, at a very, at a, at a crucial point, there's some barbarian invasions in the north and they smash a couple of Roman armies and then Marius sort of goes up and defeats them in these spectacular victories and he becomes this ludicrously popular figure uh, among the among the, the Roma people. The Cimbri, I think. The Teutones and the Cimbri, yeah. yeah. So he smashes them yeah. and th- th- this sort of idea of smashing the northern barbarians sort of lives long in the Roman psyche going back to the myths of history when the Gauls came in and sacked Rome way back in time. So Gaius Marius... Makes you really popular. Gaius Marius is extraordinarily popular with, with the plebs. He's not a man who's realistically from the, the sort of old money. He's more kind of a new money guy. He knows how to talk to the local lads. He knows how to talk to the plebs. And he's a fantastic soldier. And he makes it very clear to everyone that he fought on the line and he knows how the soldiers live. And I don't, I don't eat extra food or I don't get you know, a nicer horse or any of that kind of stuff. He basically becomes a massively, massively powerful politician using the blueprint of the Gracchi brothers. He uses that wave of popularity to com- propel himself to the top job in Rome. But then he breaks one of the Roma traditions. Michael mentioned earlier how, how the year would be named after the consuls for that year. Marius, over his lifetime, is consul seven times. And you're only supposed to do it once. You know, <laughs> so this guy sort of breaks down some of the institutional, uh, um, the institutional sort of traditions that exist in Rome. He's a ludicrously powerful general. Just to jump in there, Mark, like the other thing you're talking about, the Marian uh, reforms, it, the military reforms, the other thing that this did that further chipped away at the collective body of laws that kept Rome together was that all of a sudden, if you knew that you were uh, owed a farm by your general, Marius, so your general was Marius, you're fighting for him in a far in far off Africa, uh, you're going to go you're going to be loyal to him he's your man he's your man who's going to get you your farm after you get out of the war not so much the senate back in rome so your loyalty is tra- tra- being displaced onto yeah. the general Very much so. and the, the strong man rather than the system of republican government you know and this yeah. is exploited yeah, yeah. In, in, extremely effectively by uh, a, a whole a series of generals after everyone from Caesar to Pompey and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, if you think about the way that the soldiery, the, the makeup of the army, in the past, when it was somebody who had their own farm, they had buy-in because they were fighting for their land as well. You know, and they, like they felt that they were, they were part of the Republic. They had a, they owned a piece of it. Um, but now, as you say, the soldiers don't have that necessarily. They're, they could come from literally anywhere. Um, and so the soldiers' loyalty now is to the general. And that's that's very very dangerous. As with the the Gracchi brothers, the the there is a pushback then from the optimates, the 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 upper class, the sort of the conservative, wealthy patricians, um, and that comes in the form of a man called Sulla. Now Sulla is like Marius, a, a, a um, fantastic general for a start. He's a very very good general. He's also quite a good speaker. He's a good strategist. 
But he has the backing of the Senate. He's also um, really charming, apparently, and loved beer. He, that's what they say, yeah. Beer that's and what they wine, say. Well, yeah. they call him Sulla Felix. Felix is his, is, his, uh, is his sort of nickname, which is, just means the happy lad, happy Sulla, you know, because he, he was just very, yeah, just a charming guy. Like, um, He comes along, he's a bit younger than Marius as well, and, and Marius has, had been well entrenched in power, just upsetting everyone, basically, upsetting all the optimates, all the wealthy people. Sulla does something that, again, incredibly illegal, uh, smashes one of the old, most revered and sacred cultural institutions in Rome, and that is Sulla marches a Roman army into Rome to remove Marius. Now that is just beyond the pale. Once that's been done, it's sort of, not not that anything is up for grabs, but sort of nothing would even shock you at that point. It just offends credulity that he would do it. So this is basically um, the civil war which precedes the civil war we see uh, in yes. the Rome, the TV yeah. show with Caesar and Pompey. Every Anything that Caesar or Pompey did, they learned from the generation that preceded them. They learned from the exactly. Gracchi brothers how to use the mob, and they learned from Sulla how military might even... Going if if you ripped up the constitution and tradition, you can march into Rome and you can basically rule as a dictator and um, get exactly what you want. And never mind this republic or tradition or sharing of power. Yeah. And essentially, this generation. The reason it's so important is it taught the likes of Caesar how to how to take over. It it, it was it was yeah. It's it's. It's it's sort of proved to people of his class and generation that the institutions were not insurmountable. Uh, that was more tradition than actual fact. You could overcome anything really, and it really showed them that Marius's reforms inadvertently had made it so that if you could just get yourself an army, you could you could be a serious threat to the state. And there there obviously is a faction of senators and politicians there who are loyal to the Republic, like Cicero was. I'm sure we'll talk about it in later episodes, but. The, the the idea that uh the the republic is is this republican checks and balances system that that's you know like not something you could overthrow or not something you could defeat that concept has been chipped away now when Sulla comes in and takes power and takes Marius out he nails up a list of prescriptions and these are just like anyone who's basically an ally of Marius you're dead and he just goes around killing them all and taking their property and it's it's really really brutal stuff like but it sets as we keep saying, the, the blueprint for the later characters. Uh, and they, if, th- this is the world in which uh, Caesar is born into. This is the politics that exists. The, the post-Sullen uh, constitution, if you want to call it. Basically, when yeah. Sulla became dictator, he rewrote the whole, what's called the cursus honorum, uh, how you would gain power in Rome. So he rewrote the rules. You had to be a minimum age to be a certain to have a certain level of power he he removed all of the uh he removed basically the veto power of the tribune so he he basically um took away all the lower classes power you know he made he made it he made them they they had no more recourse against uh, abuse from the higher orders and he reset everything and said, we're going back so to tradition So was the now. distinction between them there that Marius would be the populist leader drawing on the strength of the plebs and Sulla was sort of reestablishing stuff more for the upper classes? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. Well, that sounds like a very dangerous combination, especially with what we talked about up front, like 
there's no kings in this system anymore, but there's there's a limit on the power that one man can accrue, but there's no limit on familial power, right? So uh, over the course of time, a family can grow their power, grow their wealth. There's no checks and balances there, and that's going to propel them upwards. And these checks and balances that were in place, we're start- starting to see how they're falling apart because of these men who take these actions that sort of, uh, you know, whittle away at the foundation of, of the system there. Um, I, you can sort of imagine, I suppose, how someone like Caesar, who we'll get into in more detail next episode, his upbringing and everything, but someone growing up in this time period, they all, as we've said, they, they all have their ancestors' eyes on them, at least in the their worldview, and they all have to outplay their ancestors. And these are their ancestors. These are the people who came before them, or the people who would march into Rome and, and rewrite the rules. So maybe we can do that, but bigger. <laughs> it's funny you should, you should say that, because when you would walk in, at that time period, when you would walk into a rich Roman senator's house, the first thing you would see in his hallway while you waited to be invited into the living room or whatever would be all the death masks so literally a physical mask of all that person's previous ancestors and you could walk up and so you could see the face of Scipio Africanus who defeated uh, the Carthaginians and if you imagine that you are growing up with this intense pressure to outperform your ancestors and you know establish supremacy for your family it's 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 going to lead to disaster if you're the likes of caesar and pompey and all these guys not 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 nobody can share or nobody can uh none of them will share power they they're all looking for you know to be the top dog yeah they're all trying to outdo each other and also like for this group they're principally the thing for them that makes them really really different to their predecessors all of whom had this had this kind of need to to at least equal their ancestors, if not outdo them. But the difference for Pompey and Crassus and Caesar and these guys who come later is they know that the rules aren't really the rules anymore. You know, the, so they're sort of wise to it in a way that maybe Scipio Africanus or Aemilianus back in the in the you know centuries before they would never have done that. You know that 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 concept just is so alien to them. But Caesar's sort of been shown the way here by a series of. Um, series of events and sort of disintegration of the social fabric and the institutions that, that are in front of them. I believe that pretty much brings yeah. us up to the start of season one of Rome. So obviously we're going to talk a lot more about this in the coming three episodes. Uh, before we uh, quote any relevant references, maybe we'll get do that in later episodes in more detail, but anything else you guys want to add before we sort of... Uh, close up this prequel episode for Rome. Um I would just say uh that the the show itself look is it's about the transformation of the the republic into the empire and, and it's picked Julius Caesar because he is well the most famous of the Romans you'd have to say and probably one of the most compelling people in history. Um but if anyone's uh interested in sort of learning of the the sort of the crisis behind the crisis I I would uh, I would really really encourage you to read up about Marius and Sulla. They could be and should be their own show, I think, really, because you could do something really interesting. Or even the Gracchi brothers before them. That that's a that's prime stuff for it for a nice drama series, I would say. And I would just say, uh, like myself, my love for Roman history, uh, I would owe owe a debt to a guy called Mike Duncan over at the History of Rome podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so like he's probably one of the most famous. Uh, 
podcasters out there but if you haven't listened to the history of rome he he covers it over five years basically uh 20 minute episodes uh that you can listen to very easily and he's just got this very laid back and easy to easy to understand way of telling the story uh very compelling so mike duncan reading wise uh, tom holland rubicon um or mary beard uh spqr are really really good uh books to 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 get to to kind of get a feel for this time period and you know the fall of the roman republic um yeah and if not to recommend another podcast on our podcast but i, I think it's uh difficult not to bring up hardcore history here as it's that uh dan carlin in that covers in death throes of the republic in great detail um the events that we're talking about here and also punic nightmare from around the punic wars so that's you know obviously he's not a historian neither am i uh he's just a fan of history but it's great just for a dramatized sort of feel of what that show mark was talking about would have been yeah it's the gold standard (laughs) yes it's it's very good um so next time we are getting into the likes of caesar as we said and also the first triumvirate it sounds a bit like a series of bosses you need to beat in a sonic video game or something um <laughs> but what were they actually about you know it's not that different <laughs> yeah and these main players that we're still aware of today where did they come from uh where did they go <laughs> uh, etc and and uh, all of that good stuff all the all the big et tu brutus did they actually say that what's going on there's a lot coming up in these uh coming episodes whether you've seen the hbo show or not so i hope you'll stick around for it but for now that is the end of the reel thank you for listening